Father. If uh, folks did do that just now and prayed that prayer with Michael that he sang so beautifully, that, that you would lead us to a place where our trust is without borders. Lord, that sounds like a pretty terrifying ride and yet so incredibly liberating. For we all live in fear of one border, and I think that's our own death. And we experience it every day, and yet, Lord God, would you lead us to that place where we would realize that our trust in you is stronger than death, because it's not really ours, it's yours that you have given to us, that you have implanted within us, it's eternal life. And so, Lord God, we do pray that prayer. And we pray that you would do that even this morning as we preach. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you haven't been around here for a while, you just need to know that for a year we've been preaching through the book of Ephesians and it's kind of building. In the last couple months, we've been talking about what we loosely call spiritual warfare. Um, and for uh, the last few weeks, we've been talking about the armor of God from Ephesians chapter 6. You remember, the first was truth, and then righteousness, and now peace. I don't know about you, but peace just seems like a strange piece of armor. And I'm not even sure that I like peace. I would have to say world peace. Definitely world peace. That's easy. World peace. World peace. What is the one most important thing our society needs? That would be harsher punishment for parole violators, Stan. And world peace. That's Sandra Bullock, you know, in Miss Congeniality. She, play, she plays a police officer who goes undercover at a beauty pageant. All the beauty contestants say they want world peace while they compete with each other for the crown. So desire for world peace is a lie they tell themselves and each other as they try to beat their neighbor. Peace. Peace is an act called congeniality. But Detective Gracie Hart, Gracie Hart says, no stricter punishment for a parole violator, Stan. She's a representative of the rulers and authorities. She believes that real peace must be forced with law. You know, rulers and authorities create order by taking life and calling it peace. Rulers and authorities create the illusion of peace by taking away freedom. That's why folks with the biggest guns often call themselves peacekeepers, while other folks call them life takers, oppressors, even murderers. That peace is the kind of peace that I bet your mom was looking for on Saturday morning. You know what I mean? When she'd yell, could we just get some peace and quiet around here? You kids, would you, would you just stop being so alive? So what Sigmund Freud called civilization and its discontent. Looks like peace but it's controlled resentment. Well, beauty queen or cop, it seems that peace is a false hope or a controlled resentment. But Paul is not saying hope for peace. 
He's actually not even saying work for peace. And he's certainly not saying look to the rulers and authorities to keep the peace. As he writes this, he's chained to a wall in a prison cell, having offended every rule and authority he encountered with the proclamation of the gospel of peace. See, Paul isn't saying fight for peace. He's saying fight with peace. Ephesians 6, 14. Having your feet shod with the equipment of the good news of peace. The proclamation of peace. Good news is a proclamation. Proclamation of peace. Strap peace to your feet and walk into war. Once upon a time, there was a very powerful and foolish king. And the earth, the rough ground, the, the earth hurt his feet. And so he ordered his servants to carpet the entire land with cowhide. And the court jester started laughing. He said, well, why don't you just cut out two pieces of cowhide and strap them to your feet? And he did. And that's how shoes were invented. Do you know that? Isn't that amazing? So you learned something. Paul says, stand therefore, having put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. So don't expect the earth to get smoother because that's what I think we do. Don't expect the situations to get easier, the circumstances to get easier because you're dressed in the armor of God. Soldiers get dressed in armor to walk into war. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes that he labored, he was imprisoned repeatedly, suffered countless beatings. Five times he was flogged like Christ. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned with rocks, not grass. Three times he was shipwrecked, spent a night and a day drifted at sea. And now he writes, keep peace on your feet. Wherever you go, peace. In Philippians, he writes, have no anxiety about anything. And he also writes, my imprisonment has really served to advance the gospel. Gospel, good news, the gospel of peace. Paul exercised real peace in the midst of absolute chaos. And when I think of peace that way, I, well, I think we, we have a name for that kind of peace. We call it courage. And when I, when I say courage, when I think of peace that way, well, it becomes rather attractive. It's honest peace that doesn't suck the life out of everything, but breathes life into everything, creating adventure. You know, it's really the only reason that I went to movies as a, as a kid. I wanted courage. And I thought it was, it was beautiful. Courage is peace on display in the midst of chaos. Courage is why James Bond is cool. Five seconds left on the detonator um, to a nuclear bomb that will end civilization as we know it, and James Bond is cracking jokes and picking up chicks. <laughs> he doesn't stop dancing his dance because of fear. Courage is why James Bond is cool, why Rocky Balboa is cool, Batman is cool, Arnold is cool, uh, heroes and heroines, it's why they're all, they're all cool. And yet it's so hard to be cool when life feels so out of control. I'm 52. My wife turned 53 last week, and life feels out of control. 
I'm no longer a beauty queen. The rulers and authorities don't like me the way they used to. I mean, it honestly feels like I'm on a runaway train. Indiana Jones is on a runaway train, being chased by the authorities. His circumstances are totally out of control, and yet his heart is not out of control. He's cool. Now, we know that he can be cool because he's speaking words that were written beforehand that he might speak them. He's doing deeds that were prepared beforehand that he might do them. He's in a story written by an author, and he has faith that the author is good. That's why he signed up to act in, 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 in the story. And of course, there is this thing, and, and that is that none of it's real. Harrison Ford is, is an actor. But the Apostle Paul was not an actor. And yet he did write this, Ephesians 2.9, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. Paul wasn't an actor and Jesus the Christ was also not an actor. Actually, he's the word of the author and Jesus is cool. He is the prince of peace. He, he takes a nap in a little boat floating on the abyss in a raging storm. He naps on the skin of chaos. That's what the raging sea meant to the Hebrews. He naps on the skin of chaos. That's cool. He's cool. He hangs on the cross, crucified by all of us beauty queens who want to take his crown. And the rulers and authorities that threaten his life hangs on a cross, but he wouldn't stop dancing. He wouldn't stop singing. Psalm 22 says song. He wouldn't stop dancing. He wouldn't stop singing. He wouldn't stop loving, even though it hurt like hell. And he cries, Father, forgive. He cries, Father, forgive. Into your hands I commend my spirit. He is beautiful. He is beauty. And he's the prince of, of cool, Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Nothing can stop his government and peace, his kingdom does not stop at the gates of hell. Ephesians 2.17, Paul wrote this. He came and preached peace, proclaimed peace to you who were far off, pagan Greeks, and peace to those who were near, religious Jews. See, not only was Jesus cool, he wouldn't stop until all are cool. 
I mean, not only does he have shoes on his feet, it's like he has shoes for everyone's feet, and, and maybe, maybe he'll even carpet the entire kingdom, the entire earth. For Isaiah continues to prophesy, 11, 5 through 9, Righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Wow. He's the Prince of Peace. And yet to his disciples, he said, I have not come to bring peace. <laughs> but a sword. What the heck? So what does that mean? What does peace for walking into war mean? What does the Prince of Peace carrying a sword mean? What is peace? Well, in Scripture, peace is much more than simply the cessation of war. In, in the Hebrew language, the word is shalom. It means everything is good. Behold, everything is is good, and it's not static, but dynamic. It's righteousness in relationships of truth. Remember the first two pieces of armor? Righteousness in relationship. It's a city where everyone and every interaction is good. Jesus is called the Prince of Shalom. In the Revelation, his bride is the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem came to mean Jerusalem, or city of peace, city of Shalom. Throughout the Old Testament, Folks are commanded to build Jerusalem, city of Shalom. But she acts like a harlot once they build her. She acts like a harlot rather than a bride. She crucifies Jesus, the prince of Shalom, and she's destroyed. Old Jerusalem is destroyed. But in the Revelation, John sees that she comes down new from God as a bride adorned for her husband. It's like all of history reveals that men cannot make shalom. But God makes men and women into shalom. His body, his city, his bride. Ephesians 1.17, Paul prays that the Ephesians would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they would receive a apocalypsis, a, a revelation, that they would receive a revelation. And it was to Ephesus that John sent the revelation 30 years later. In chapter 5 of the book of Revelation, John sees every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's hell. And in the sea, the sea was chaos, the abyss of the Hebrews. It was the home of Leviathan, the seven-headed, twisting chaos monster. Uh, every creature in heaven and on earth, Revelation 5.23. Heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them praising God and this slaughtered lamb standing on the throne. All praising that shalom. John sees it and obviously wonders, how has this happened? Then the lamb starts opening seven seals, seven. It seems that all hell is breaking loose, but we watch as the lamb and those with him conquer. At the seventh bowl, seventh thunder, seventh trumpet of the seventh seal, when all the principalities and powers of this world have been conquered, John sees the new Jerusalem descending from God upon a new heaven and a new earth as a voice comes from the throne saying, Behold, 
Look, write this down, John. I make all things new. I am the beginning and the end. Of his government and his peace, there will be no end. Why? Because he is the end. You know, every Sabbath, every seventh day is to be an anticipation of that. An anticipation and a remembrance. Anticipation and remembrance for, for that peace is the beginning and the end. It's eternal. In Genesis 1, God creates all things in six days. On the seventh day, he rests for everything is good. Everything is good. It is finished. Three times scripture says, do not forget this one fact, brethren. With the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. And now physicists tell us that time is relative and relative to the perspective of creation. 14 billion years really is six days and six days really is 14 billion years. And scripture has always testified that man is still being created in God's image. It's not finished until each of us is finished at the foot of a tree on which the God's word in flesh cries out, it is finished. Paul calls him the firstborn of all creation. Do the math. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn from the dead. So no one is finished. No one is fully created until they are finished in Christ, the lamb uh, on the throne, the word of God that does not return void, the prince of shalom. This world doesn't look like shalom, does it? See, this is the sixth day of creation. So when and where is shalom? Now, I should probably point this diagram out to you every time that, that we preach. Because I think it's that important. It's what the modern, with our modern view of space and time, it's what we have missed, but it's been there all along. Big bang to the end of time. God made, will make, or is making the cosmos in six days, depending on your perspective. The seventh day is a different kind of day. On that day, everything is good. And God, remember, is good. And God is eternal. Zechariah 14, it's a unique day, a day on which there's no morning nor e evening. The seventh day is eternal shalom. So where's shalom? Where's number seven? Not talking about John Elway, but the prince of Shalom. Where's shalom? Well, shalom is at the end of time and at the beginning of time because he is the beginning and the end. Jesus is alpha and omega, beginning and, and end. And shalom is all around us. I mean, like the kingdom of heaven really is at hand, at hand, like music in a dance hall, just waiting for us to surrender and begin to dance, like the logos of God that upholds all things. And look, the logos became incarnos. We wrapped him in swaddling clothes and placed him in a manger. On the sixth day of creation, the sixth day of the week, at the sixth hour, we nailed him to a tree in a garden and tried to steal his crown. 
and there he forgave his crown. And there we are made in his image. He is the prince of shalom. And he gives you shalom. My peace I give you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. He gives you shalom. You don't make peace. Peace makes you. Jesus did say, blessed are the peace doers, but you don't make Jerusalem. Jerusalem makes you. Paul wrote it in Galatians 4.26. The Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Don't, don't mean to freak you out, but I think you are the fruit of Christ's intimate communion with his eternal bride in perfect shalom. Now, I don't know that I really even begin to comprehend everything I just said. <laughs> I'm just trying to say what Scripture has said all along. And I'm trying to convince you that Paul actually meant the stuff he wrote in his letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 17, 7 through 12. Remember, we read this about a year ago. In Christ, God has lavished his grace upon us. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. There's empty time and there's full time. A plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Anakephalio is the verb, to bring together under one head, even one wounded head. To anakephalio all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He's in control so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, that we might sing the song of Revelation chapter 5 and teach it to others, that we might dance the dance and teach others to dance, that we might share in the life of Christ and rejoice in his victory, which is the story of his victory over the ancient dragon, which is the story of our own creation by grace through faith, that we might internally enjoy shalom and live forever to the praise of God's glory glory in Christ Jesus, our Lord, Prince of Peace. Now let's read Ephesians 6, 10 through 15, our, our text for today. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. You know, I think evil is, is chaos. Evil is the absence of shalom. We wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be, may be able to withstand in the evil day. I think that's a day that has evil in it. I think that's today. The sixth day, the sixth, sixth, sixth day. Our bodies exist in the sixth day, and yet, you know, new life in us is eternal life in us. It's the presence of the seventh day in us. We're standing in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand firm. 
Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by or literally the preparation of, preparation of the gospel of peace, the equipment of the gospel of peace, the good news of shalom. You know, when my kids were little, I, I never stopped being amazed at how good news of shalom changed the meaning of every experience and filled their time with life. Over and over again, my kids, when they were little, they'd get in some accident and they'd come running to me, usually in a public place after they had fallen on their bottom and they'd say, Daddy, kiss it, kiss it, kiss it. And I'd smile, pick them up, kiss the owie and say, you're okay. And immediately, immediately they'd run off laughing and dancing and, and living like my, like my kiss actually healed the wound. And, and maybe it, it did. The kiss told them, I still love you. I'm still in control. You're not, I am. Everything's okay. You know, I think the death and resurrection of Jesus is like the kiss of our Father upon this whole fallen world saying, I still love you, and I'm still in control. Yes, it hurts. Yes, you're dying. Yes, you are all losing control. But look, I'm still in control. Everything's okay. Have courage. Remember how I said that life is like a runaway train? I said that because life is a runaway train. And you are losing all control. Notice that? Life is a runaway train. A roller coaster is also a runaway train. On a roller coaster, you have no control, and yet your heart can be in control if you have faith that someone is in control that doesn't hate you. I love to watch people on roller coasters because they're all experiencing the same thing, but having very different experiences. Know what I mean? Some are laughing, perhaps screaming with some fear, and yet all their fear is filled with joy. They've got their hands in the air, their eyes are wide open in delight, while on the very same ride, other people experiencing the exact same trauma are not laughing. Their jaws are clenched tight. Their faces are filled with agony and pain. Their hands are not lifted in the air. Their knuckles are white and wrapped around the safety bar in a death grip. And their eyes are fast shut. They're locked down in fear, desperately trying to maintain control. The first group is in heaven. The second group is in hell. Sometimes on the ride, you'll see someone go from hell to heaven, and they'll just burst out laughing with, with joy. It's when they begin to believe that even though they're not in control, someone is in control that does not hate them. It's when they begin to have peace in what feels like absolute chaos. An old friend of mine, Mike Iaconelli, died a few years ago. Before he died, he wrote the following. I believe roller coasters are an accurate model of the Christian life. 
Sunday school, baptism, church membership, and you think, hey, no problem, I can follow Jesus anywhere. And then, zoom, you crash into the twists and turns of life, jerking left and right, up, down, 50, 60 years go by, and wham, you're dead. If I were to have a heart attack right at this moment, I hope I would have just enough air in my lungs and just enough strength in me to utter one last sentence as I fell to the floor. What a ride. <laughs> what a ride. Maybe eternity is all about screaming, what a ride. About worshiping the creator of the roller coaster and screaming, what a ride. But you don't have to wait to the end of the ride to scream, what a ride. In my family, my immediate family, riding the roller coaster became something of like a, a rite of passage for my kids. Mom would stay behind in kitty land, but one by one the kids would come to me and say, Dad, can we ride the big ride? They'd be terrified. But I would give them my word and I would give them my presence. It would always start in fear and trepidation and then end in absolute delight. I remember the first time that I took Elizabeth on the sidewinder at Elitch's. It was about 1998. And I remember we had come right out of this loop, gone up the other side, and, and uh, I look over at Elizabeth and she's got her hands wrapped around the bar and she just... And snot is shooting out of her nose and she's crying out, I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead. <laughs> and then I watched as she came to life. That was awesome! <laughs> and she began telling everybody, that was awesome, it was awesome, it was awesome, it was awesome. In fact, she wrote a poem for me called Dads, here are three lines from the poems. Dads that are always there for you. Dads that will be there to go on the big rides. Dads, if they were not here, the world would be blank. Do you know that you have a dad? He controls the ride beginning to end. In fact, he built it. And he's with you. He's strapped in right next to you. He will hug you. At the, at the end of the ride, you'll feel his hug. But he's strapped in right next to you on the right. And he loves you. He loves you with everything that he has and everything that he is. And he's showing you. Well, if you don't know that, maybe the eyes of your heart are clamped shut in fear. If you don't know that, even heaven might feel like hell. But if you do know that, even hell might feel like heaven because you've got peace strapped to your feet wherever you go. Well, the roller coaster was like a rite of passage. And it created something. It created faith in me, in my daughter. It created faith, and it created a communion between us, and it created courage. Maybe our Father is creating courage, and, and that piece on our feet changes every step that we take. 17 years ago, uh, we got to take the kids to Disney World, and Jonathan was just totally intrigued by, and yet a bit terrified of, Space Mountain. 
So we approach Space Mountain with a great deal of fear and trepidation. We approach the mountain with great caution. And then we rode. And then we rode again. And then we rode again and again and again. We, we rode that baby for like four days straight, I, every minute of the day, riding the ride, running from the end back to the beginning. And each time, I think Jonathan enjoyed it more as he'd scream out, do it again, do it again, we gotta do it again, do it again, do it again. This is your first time on the ride that you call your life. I don't believe in reincarnation, but I do believe in the fullness of time. And that faithlessness and fear are like empty time. And I suspect that eternity is not timeless so much as time full. It's all your time. It's at least all your time. It's maybe a whole bunch of other times. Your time full of peace. So on the seventh day, you will thank God for your life, perhaps even fully live your life, but maybe you can fully walk in each moment right now with the shoes of the preparedness, same, same word as Ephesians 2.10 when he said every moment, uh, every, every, uh, it's, uh, deeds prepared for you to walk in, maybe now you can walk in each moment full of life, fully living life with the shoes of the preparedness of the gospel of peace. If you have peace on your feet. Whatever the case, scripture seems pretty clear to me that we're all gonna arrive at the seventh day when everything is good and all is shalom. But shalom in your heart, here and now, changes the meaning of every moment, here and now, on the ride. It changes the way you travel. <laughs> Maybe in some weird way, even if you travel. For peace is the way and the life. But Paul also seems to be saying something really rather amazing. He said it's, it's, like, it's like it's also a weapon. Do you remember when the Prince of Peace stood before Pilate representing the powers of Rome and Pilate said to him, he said, don't you know, he was being troubled by Jesus and his peace, don't you know that I have authority over you to release you or crucify you? And then Jesus, Prince of Peace, standing there stripped, beaten, flogged, ready to die, looks Pilate in the face and he said, you would have absolutely no power over me except that which is granted to you from above. In other words, Pilate, my father is in control of this ride. And that peace cut Pilate. It cut him like a sword deep into his heart. And that peace would soon drop a Roman centurion at the foot of the cross and drop him to his knees crying out, surely this was the son of God. You know, every knee will bow. Scripture says that three times. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And, and I think that's how it happens. Well, you see, Jesus didn't just have peace. He proclaimed peace. And that proclamation is a sword. Stand, therefore, with your feet shod with equipment of the good news, the proclamation of peace. Jesus just doesn't want you to have peace. He wants you to go to battle with the proclamation of peace, releasing people from the dominion of chaos and fear into his kingdom of shalom. 
and it's a proclamation. Not a bargain, not a deal. It's a proclamation. In other words, peace is an objective, eternal reality that has become a subjective, temporal reality in your heart. So to preach the gospel of peace on a roller coaster is to do this. So throw your hands in the air, surrender control, and scream, what a ride, what a ride! That's, I think that's called worship. The proclamation of peace is the good news that God is your father, he loves you, and he is control, he's in control, absolute control of the ride. As long as a person rejects God's word, shut down in fear and shame, I think that person remains in hell, outer darkness, weeping, gnashing their teeth. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't love them. That doesn't mean that God does not still control the ride. That doesn't mean that God is not right there with them, speaking his word to them. In fact, you may be sitting next to them and God is calling you to speak his word to them. The proclamation of peace. But you cannot proclaim peace if you do not believe that there is peace to proclaim. For too long, religious people have been saying, God controls the ride, but he actually only loves some of us. <laughs> have peace, enjoy the ride. <laughs> or, God loves all, God loves all of us, <laughs> but he's not in control of this ride. Have peace, enjoy the ride. Can you imagine if I took all four of my kids on the roller coaster and said, kids, I'm totally in control of this ride, but I only love two of you. <laughs> so two of you are gonna die at the end of the ride, and two of you are gonna live at the ride, at the end of the ride, and be forever grateful that you didn't die at the end of the ride like your brother and sister. <laughs> Have peace, enjoy the ride. Or what if I said, I, I love each of you, oh, I love each of you so much, all four of you, I love each of you so much, absolutely, I just burn with love for you, but, but, I'm, but I'm actually not in control of this, right? However, if you believe, if you really believe that I am in control of this, right, well, that I am in control of this, right? <laughs> so have peace and enjoy the ride. Have peace or die. We know God is love. And I don't think God decides to be not God. God is love. And God is in control. Like Paul said, accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. God is love and God is in control. And so you can turn to your neighbor and say, God loves you. God loves you and God is in control of this whole deal. God's in control of the right. He consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. He forgives you for your faithlessness. He's not mad at you. Just look at him. Just look at him. He loves you. He adores you. Have peace. Enjoy the ride. But if we preach God saves, and you know the phrase God saves is, is a name, Jesus if we preach God saves, yet we preach him conditionally and in fear, aren't we really preaching I save? 
or you save, or the institutional church saves, or your choice saves, or your anxiety saves. We save, we save from God who may not love us and may not be in control of this ride. How backwards is that? We save ourselves from God? Who would try to convince us of such a thing? Well, you know, Paul is talking about spiritual warfare. Well, listen to what he wrote in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What a phrase, killing the hostility. Verse 14, he himself is our peace. Maybe he didn't come to bring peace because he himself is our peace. He himself is peace and his proclamation, a sword, his presence, a sword. He himself is utterly hostile to hostility. He himself utterly violates Violence. He himself is the death of death. I think we call that life. He himself is the word of God spoken into chaos and the void creating all things. He himself crushes the seven heads of the ancient chaos monster Leviathan. He himself defeats the devil and the principalities and powers of this world. He is peace and this is how he goes to war. Oh. At the beginning of the sixth day, which you know in the way that the Hebrews reckon days, the way scripture reckon days, was our Thursday, Thursday night. But at the beginning of Friday, the sixth day, the Prince of Shalom took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, after supper and having given thanks, he took the, he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant. Hebrews calls it the eternal covenant. The covenant in my blood. The life is in the blood, says scripture. Take and drink. He gives us his body and blood, and then he dies. 
and rises from the grave. You know, once we took all four of my kids to the Magic Kingdom in California, and they all had this one favorite ride. It was uh, like a roller coaster, but it was more than just a roller coaster. It was Indiana Jones's roller coaster. Like the story of his life. So that like his story would become your story as you journeyed through his life. It was called the Indiana Jones Adventure Ride. I think that Paul actually believes that we are right now Christ's body in this world. And as we travel through time, he is actually filling us with his life, his faith, his peace, his righteousness, himself. You see, Paul believed that he was actually, I think this is maybe how he would say it if he were here today, that he was actually on the Jesus Christ adventure ride. That in his flesh, he experienced the sufferings of Christ and the life of Christ, his death and resurrection. That on this ride, God was creating Christ's faith within himself, creating faith in himself and a communion with himself. That at the end of the ride, Paul would know God even as he was known by God. And even here and now, Christ was the fullness of all his time, the meaning of every moment. Christ Jesus was his peace as together they crushed the head of the ancient dragon and liberated the children of Adam from bondage to death and hell. What a ride! Can you imagine a more incredible ride? And Jesus has asked you to go on that ride. You're one of those children. And you are his body. So you see what I'm saying? What does this communion mean? It means that you are not on a runaway train. Stop trying to seize control of a runaway train. That's sin and it creates hell. You're not on a runaway train, you're on a roller coaster, strapped in next to the Prince of Peace. You're on the Jesus Christ adventure, right? So have peace. Enjoy the ride. Light cups are juice. Dark cups are wine. We invite you to come forward, tear off a piece of the body, dip it in the blood, and, well, um, put it in your mouth. Swallow it. And enjoy the ride. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, I, I know what some of you are thinking. You're, you're, that's cool, but really? Because that's kind of hard to believe. It is hard to believe. Because we're not in kiddie land anymore. This is the big ride, okay? On this ride, 
you're going to witness a bunch of things. I mean, you, you, you may, it may include cancer. It may include insanity. It may include plunges into the most terrifying places, the valley of the shadow of death. You may climb to the highest heights. You may experience being jerked to the right and jerked to the left and then back in the middle. I mean, these are the things you'll experience on this ride, but you will witness your own creation in the image of God. And you will witness the lamb that was slain redeeming all things for his glory and his purpose. You will witness the creation of shalom. And bam, at the end of the ride, well, it's only the beginning. And you'll scream, what a ride. You see, by faith, you can scream, what a ride right now. So have peace, enjoy the ride, and Jerry wants to say it, what a ride! <laughs>